Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, and this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world. We're fortunate today in that we have a guest who's taken his own stab at trying to explain what's going on in the world and why. With us today is Richard Fenning. Richard's the former CEO of Control Risks and now an executive coach and partner with Manchester Square Partners in London. Richard's memoirs, a book called What on Earth Can Go Wrong, is published this month by iBooks. That's E-Y-E for those of you who are keeping track. As many of you will know, Richard spent 27 years with Control Risks and was CEO for 14 of those before retiring from that role two years ago. Richard, welcome to the Global Insight, and welcome back to Control Risks, even if only just for a few minutes. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Richard, you've written a book. So first of all, congratulations. I've read it, and it is a fascinating, engaging, and textured read. And much like this podcast, it's a trip around the world with a view towards why things work the way they do. Yes, indeed. I have, to my amazement, written a book, and it is as you suggest, Charles, it's about kind of how the world works, or in some cases, very specifically, how the world doesn't work. And like many of us, I'd always had an inkling desire to write a book. And when I retired from Control Risks a couple of years ago, I suddenly had the time to do that. I had an idea that having spent a long time immersed in kind of international affairs and geopolitics, I might want to say something about that. But I very specifically didn't want to write one of those books with a very portentous title that sits on people's bookshelves during Zoom calls to impress other people, but ones they evidently have never read. I didn't want to do that. I had sort of something to say, I thought, about leadership and risk and the kind of why human beings behave as they do under stress, but I didn't want to write a whole book on that. And then I had probably something to say about my own time in this world but I very specifically didn't want to write a sort of pretentious autobiography. So what I've done in the end is I've tried to weave all three of those things together. There's something in here about geopolitics. There's something in here, I hope, about risk and leadership. And there's something about what happened to me in close to three decades, immersed deep in the control risks world. And I guess I've tried to put in a little bit of roughage, a little bit of roughage of humor to make it all the more digestible. Well, other people will be the judge of whether it's humorous or not, not me. Why don't we jump straight into the middle of the book and one of the many compelling stories that you have to tell. We're going to go into a particularly graphic episode. And for reference, we are in chapter four, which takes us to Kenya. In this particular part of the story, you and the Control Risks Board of Directors are meeting in our offices in the Cotton Center in London. And, you know, so far, so routine. You know, here you are being a CEO exercising leadership at a board meeting. And then somebody passes you a note. So I'm just going to read you a little bit to set some context to, to what was happening that day. So a little bit before the board meeting, and we'll, we'll see how we go. In September 2013, the Westgate shopping mall in central Nairobi was attacked by gunmen from the Al-Shabaab terrorist organization with links to Somalia. 68 people died in the attack. 
Al-Shabaab had long been in conflict with the Kenyan Defense Force, due in part to Kenya's significant role in the African Union mission in Somalia. This was not the first time that Kenya's vulnerability to terrorism had been laid bare for the world to see. In 1998, Al-Qaeda had attacked the US Embassy in Nairobi with spectacular consequences. Nor would it be the last. 18 months later, Al-Shabaab attacked Garissa University College in northern Kenya, massacring 148 students. But there is an often cruel calculus to what makes an event globally newsworthy. The Westgate incident lasted long enough for international news crews to get there. And when they did, they had easy access to the site. That the Kenyan soldiers who were sent in to take back the building were alleged to have prolonged the attack in order to systematically loot the shops in the mall added spice to the story. Tales of venality and corruption act as an accelerant to any narrative. And in this case, they reinforced the prejudiced view of local Kenyan incompetence that plays to the inherent bias of foreign audiences. A number of foreign civilians took matters into their own hands and with extreme bravery entered the building to evacuate shoppers trapped by the terrorists. This added an additional newsworthy subplot of civilian heroism. There were countless examples of local Kenyan bravery that day, but these stories are of no interest to British tabloids. I was in a board meeting in London when a message was passed to me discreetly under the table explaining that two of our colleagues, a friendly Irishman and a taciturn Welshman, had slipped into the Westgate Centre after the attack had started. They had initially entered the building to rescue a client and his family from a restaurant on the top floor. Despite the presence of armed terrorists, they had found a way in made the way up a service staircase and escorted the distressed family back to safety. But they knew that they had been forced to leave many others behind. These families were now trapped by the terrorists who were working their way up through the shopping centre, floor by floor, shooting and killing as they went. They made the decision to go back in. Over the next few hours, they evacuated scores of people under the noses of the terrorists, moving them as rapidly and quietly as possible down a stairwell at the back of the building. It was an act of extraordinary courage. For the rest of the board meeting, I was given regular covert updates on their progress while struggling publicly to concentrate on the complexities of a discounted cash flow calculation. Not for the first time, I felt stuck on the wrong side of the managerial divide. Westgate was a direct attack on a soft target that crucially included among the casualties a number of non-Kenyans. That is the harsh, unpleasant reality. Africans killing Africans creates little more than a flicker of international media interest. Add in dead white people and you have a story. Years later, Westgate remains an iconic moment in the tragic canon of urban terrorism. The attack on Greece University is almost entirely forgotten outside Kenya. Richard, thank you for that. The the, the power of this anecdote is in how many different types of moments 
it captures. Number one, you have board meetings. You're sitting, uh, you know, I can picture the room. You're sitting in a boardroom and discussing discounted cash flow. And, you know, board meetings are usually an opportunity to discuss strategy. And I guess the moment that this encapsulates is how easy strategy can be interrupted. The other thing is that global issues like transnational terrorism can shake entire countries and companies to their foundations. But at the very bottom of all of these stories, they are intensely personal. We had colleagues in that building. There were families in that building. This wasn't something abstract. This was something very human. And then finally, moments like this and challenges like this test the abilities and I guess the boundaries really of leadership and you know, what you can do, what you can't do, or perhaps phrased otherwise, what you want to do and what you should do. Richard, the book is absolutely rich in moments like this, stories of people and unique places and, and unique challenges, you know, a great number of which, you know, even for those of us in the forecasting business, were not hugely easy to predict. Tell us a little bit about what the book says about adaptability. So essentially, that I think is one of, I hope, one of the themes that runs through it, that the world is profoundly unpredictable, that fame and fortune can be kind of very fickle companions to all sorts of people, including people charged with running international businesses. And how, how you construct a business, how you navigate a business through all of that is something that I've now and I guess through the book, had chance to reflect upon. And I think specifically for a firm like Control Risks, that ability to adapt and change when necessary. There's a sort of doctrinaire view of strategy that says it needs to be kind of super focused. You need to have a very tight lens on what it is that you want to do and do that better than most other people can do it, if not everybody. And I guess that, of course, logically is true. But if I look back at control risks, and indeed I look forward for control risks, one of the great attributes that the firm has is that it does so many different things in so many different parts of the world. Of course, at times can be frustrating. I remember as CEO being envious of people running companies that had a much tighter, narrower set of and attributes than control risks has. But it is also in the unpredictable world of kind of geopolitics and international security issues and all the extraordinary things that can go wrong for companies, both physically, fiscally, and in all sorts of increasingly technological cyber dimensions, that adaptability, that ability to be able to reapply existing talents and resources very quickly for clients who are perplexed by the velocity with which the world can change around them. That strikes me as a great attribute, and it's certainly been the source of enormous material for somebody trying to write a book about it. At the same time, though, Richard, there are people outside the company who will demand that you have that strategy that you mentioned that other companies sometimes have something with genuine clarity, with genuine focus, and something that seems etched in stone, your bankers will want you to have a strategy. Your lawyers will want you to have a strategy. And, and, and the market and your clients want to know where control risks is going. 
how do you strike a balance among all of those competing forces? And also, you know, as, as we talk about one of the things that control risks did in Kenya, tell us a little bit more about some of the other things the company does elsewhere. So that's right. I mean, I, I don't want to give the impression that strategy is a pointless exercise. It's super important to have a clear sense of what the company intends to do and where it intends to do it. And as you say, if you're having to raise money or indeed persuade people to come and work for us or clients to kind of stay with us over many years, the company has to have a clear sense of purpose, and which it does, and it has to have a clear sense of direction. What it can't do, and this is, I think, inherent in everything about the way the world is, it can't have a predetermined, prescribed view of how it thinks the world is going to unfold. And the difference between being in the business of helping people understand potential futures for themselves and their businesses is very different from having a dogmatic, narrow, there can only be one outcome kind of view of what might possibly unfold. And I think by and large, control risks gets that balance really well. And it's why, as you know, as well as anybody, Chuck, that's why the company has managed to prosper in so many different parts of the world and accommodate so many different types of people to come and work for the firm and indeed as clients to continue to enjoy a really fruitful relationship with the firm. Richard, the book covers a significant span of time. And most of the countries that you visited as you take us through this book, most of those places you've been to, you've been several times over. Tell us a little bit about how some of your favorite places have evolved over the years. Some of them have changed dramatically, and I'm very fond of Colombia and have had some of my most formative control risk experiences in Colombia and write about it with passion, actually, in the book. And that's a country that, when I first went there, was on the brink of complete state failure due to the endemic problems of terrorism and the illegal narcotics business. And whilst Nobody would claim that Colombia is completely out of the woods. It has made such remarkable progress towards normality and an extraordinary ability to tackle those problems. Benefited, of course, from the passage of time, which in some cases can just help to sort of ease generationally one set of problems out of a country's experience. Kind of easy to think in this business that all that ever happens is the world just kind of spirals downhill in some rather depressing vortex. And that's not the case. That isn't the case with with places like Colombia. I think of other places that I write about in the book, like Iraq, where the ability for people, the West in this case, to go in and decapitate a regime and change everything in the expectation that things are going to get much better the capacity to do that is infinite. The ability to be able to actually genuinely make things better seems just beyond as difficult. And I write a lot, I think, about why it is that often well-intentioned people just find it so hard to make positive change in countries that they don't understand and they don't really, not really able to kind of control the narrative in the way they think they will. And of course, in retrospect, it all seems entirely obvious that that was what was going to happen in Iraq. Having been there at the time, it didn't entirely feel like that. 
And I hope what I try to do is paint a picture of what it felt like at some of these moments where, in retrospect, we see the narrative unfolding with almost depressing certainty. But it didn't always feel like that. There were moments in the last 20 or so years in Iraq where it might have gone differently. It might have been better than it has been. And there are some countries that seem to almost go kind of full circle. You and I have spent many times in in Moscow over the years. And that's a country that certainly when I first started going there, floods of bankers and business people were arriving in Moscow in the expectation that this was some enormous European emerging market that we were all going to make incredible sums of money out of. And where are we now? We're sort of locked back in some different version of the past in terms of relationships with Moscow. And of course, Russia is a radically different country than it was in the late 80s, early 90s, radically different. It hasn't just been a return to the past, but it hasn't gone the way so many people expected. And China too. China is the great economic miracle of our lifetime. And yet, for all the enthusiasm and all the change and all the wealth creation, geopolitically, we seem to be kind of locked back in this depressing cycle of antagonism. So I hope the book balances some of the optimistic things and the positive things that have happened. It's certainly intended to. It's not meant to be a kind of series of examples of countries falling over themselves to fail. And I guess one of the most vivid cameos in the book is Libya, where I was there just as Gaddafi was being ousted. And this enormous sense that here you have a country with a small population and huge amounts of oil and a relatively kind of peaceful European-orientated country. And all these years later, we're still in this terrible cycle of violence and kind of competing power groups. So there is, I'm afraid, plenty of that in the book, but I hope it serves to illustrate just how difficult it is, even when you're there close to the action, to have any sense of how the wheel of fortune may turn for all these different countries. Richard, for all of the observations of of, of the course of, I guess what you might call sort of human geography, the book is laugh out loud funny in places. You know, I, I advise against having a full mouth of coffee while you're reading certain passages in the book. There are plenty of passages in the book that are outrageous. Give us a tiny taste. Funny things do happen. If you spend enough time in a kind of state of permanent jet lag, flying from one country to the next, being whisked up by colleagues and taken into all sorts of difficult circumstances and unusual circumstances, inevitably things go go wrong and you don't entirely control events as they as they unfold around you. And there have been some very amusing moments. At the time, they didn't always seem that funny, but they seem funny in retrospect. And I hope other people find them amusing and find some entertainment in this. And my intention was never to write a, a book that was only devoted to the sort of political and business and leadership issues. One of the great things about control risks I always found was that sort of warmth and humanity that felt with my colleagues wherever I went. And finding myself in bizarre situations in China or Brazil or Russia, indeed, or Japan, 
it was an extraordinary pinch yourself career, really. Pinch yourself that you're actually here experiencing this. Richard, without giving away any spoilers, we're going to jump to the very end of the book where you end with a discussion about the difference between fear and risk. Bring that chapter to life for us a little bit. And, and also just tell us where you and where control risk sits in that equation. So I try to disentangle two things that I think all of us kind of get wrapped around each other, both in our daily lives and when we try to run businesses. And that's this process of determining risk and also experiencing fear. And I hope that I try to point out the difference. So analyzing and understanding risk is a cerebral process. There's a sort of quasi-science to it. It's the calculation of the probability of adverse things happening. And it is a very deliberate process that we actively go through. We use that part of our brains that we can instruct to do things to make some assumptions and come up with, with an answer. But we all experience fear, and we experience fear in a different part of our brain, the part of our brain that we can't really control, that responds instinctively to stimulus that we don't realize that we're experiencing. And the consequence of that is that we often get those things jumbled up. And sometimes we, we respond to things that aren't as risky as we think they are, but because we're experiencing some other almost emotional response to them. And it's a very trite example, but I think I've mentioned in the book that given countless presentations on terrorism over the years, and of course, as we know viscerally at control risks, and I hope as that description in the chapter on Kenya testifies to, terrorism is an appalling thing and spent any time with people who've been directly affected by it. Never underestimate just why it is such an extraordinary evil in society. Completely comprehend that. But for many people, it's an outlier event. The probability of it directly affecting them is probably lower than they anticipate if what they are fed on a daily basis is a diet of news headlines that exaggerates that risk potentially. On the other hand, I've often given presentations to groups of business people in the full knowledge that some of them will ultimately go to jail for fraud. Now, that's a conscious decision that they will take to defraud the organization they work for. And yet, they kind of, it's like getting in a car. You downplay the risk because it's just become an automatic reflex part of everyday life. And not that fraud is necessarily an everyday, a part of everyday life, but it is so routine in so many organizations in so many parts of the world, people have become kind of desensitized to it. So there's something that is actually going to happen in any large international organization. It is definitely going to happen. There are things that you can do to stop it happening. Terrorism, meanwhile, is much harder to guard against. And so it's just trying to help people disentangle the stuff that they can do something about that actually might happen from overly concerning themselves about things that if they were to happen will be awful, but there is a limited amount that they can do by way of advanced mitigation. And of course, what I also, I hope, try to explain is that as human beings, the impulse to take risk is very, very strong. It's very deeply wired into us. And I describe at one stage 
the prospect of our ancient ancestors going on a mammoth hunt. Who in their right mind goes and hunts mammoths? I mean, it's an insanely dangerous thing to do. Why not stay nearer the cave and eat berries and drink puddle water and just kind of get by on a subsistence diet rather than do something mad like hunt a mammoth? But that was it. That's what was the sort of spark of human progress, was that ability to kind of do something kind of beyond the ordinary, beyond their natural, normal range of capabilities. And of course, hunting mammoths gives you protein, it gives you prestige, it gives you teamwork, it gives you all the basic building blocks for societies to develop. So the risk-taking impulse is an essential part of what makes us human beings, what makes us successful as a species, what gives us that ability to do things that we might not otherwise have been able to do. And yet, somehow, this ancient software that we have inside us that tells us what to be scared of and what not, we just haven't done the software upgrades over the years. So our brains warp on occasions. They go into some kind of strange spasm, and we end up doing crazy stuff, and we end up sometimes worrying about completely the wrong things. One of the more fascinating things about having a long career in this sort of business, particularly at Control Risks, is that you learn about and you witness how companies and the collective of individuals that they represent, how companies digest and process, and in many cases, amortize risk. And you have companies that are genuinely led by sort of swashbuckling executives and companies that are led by incredibly conservative leaders. And seeing the characteristics that make up those two different types of leaders, and then the companies that evolve out of that leadership, it's a privileged position to be in, and it's fascinating to watch and compare. Now, Richard, you expressed at the very beginning of the podcast a certain element of surprise that you actually laid a book down onto the page, but you are going to have to get used to being called a writer and a memoirist. So in that spirit, tell us who you enjoy reading, and also, did you or who did you have in the back of your mind where you were thinking, this is the kind of look and feel that I would love to have in my book? So shamelessly, I inspired by the late, great Anthony Bourdain, who many people will know from his TV documentaries and indeed from his early writing. Anthony Bourdain is a New York, originally a New York chef cook who wrote a brilliant book called Kitchen Confidential about the sort of seamy side of life in a New York kitchen, but went on to do the most amazing series of documentaries all around the world. And so actually that's what inspired me to write this kind of book was not so much Anthony Bourdain's writing, but his TV shows, because he goes to countries ostensibly in pursuit of their culinary profile, if you like, to understand what these people eat and to kind of try it out. But on the way, he shines a light on the culture, on the society, on the politics, on the people he meets, and a little bit of the sort of enigmatic Anthony Bourdain, real person who kind of sits behind the TV persona. I, I don't even begin to pretend that I've achieved anything like what I think he magnificently did over a very long career. But that's the kind of thing that I enjoy. And I guess I tried to craft something of that. It's that going to places with an inquisitive mind, being open to new experiences, and a sort of thirst and an intrigue about why people are like they are, why people are different, why people are the same very often, actually, behind the sort of superficial specifics of individual countries. There's just 
enormous commonality in the human experience. And don't think I realized it at the time when I was writing the book, and I certainly didn't realize it at the time over many, many years of constant travel with control risks, that that's what was being laid down in my memory. But thinking about it now, that's the book that I set out to try and write. Tell us what you left out of the book. I left out all the boring bits, uh, (laughs) other than the one (laughs) reference to trying to get my brain around a discounted cash flow in a board meeting whilst the world was unfolding in Kenya. I left out pretty much all the, all the, the necessary stuff that it takes to run an international business. I just presented the reader with a box of chocolates, really, that they can go in and pick various countries and hopefully see the the kind of interesting highlights, the kind of showreel of control risks life. But of course, there's an enormous amount of effort and hard work that goes into making any organization, let alone control risks. That's the bit that I left out. I just put in, I hope, those bits of interest that in retrospect, I kind of focus my memory on those and probably dial back endless meetings about appraisal systems and capital expenditure budgets and all all the stuff you rightly said before that we need to have as an organization in order to persuade people to jump aboard with us. Uh, a grateful readership thanks you for leaving out the laptop crashes, the Excel spreadsheets, you know, the email piles, and all of that stuff that we're already familiar with. Last question, Richard, when is this box of chocolates out on the shelves? So it should be available on March the 22nd, and I think it's available for pre-order now. It's an exciting and somewhat intimidating process. I put it out there for what it's worth, and I hope people enjoy it. Fantastic. Richard, 27 years in a company... I don't think you ever really leave a company after that length of service. And I don't think that the company ever really leaves you after that length of service. Keep in touch, Richard. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay updated with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient at controlrisks.com. Thank you, and bye for now.